Well, welcome, welcome. This is uh, Wrong Place, Right Crime, a crime fiction broadcast. I'm your host, Frank Zafiro. We are going to be talking on this show mostly to crime fiction authors about uh, crime fiction, the mystery genre in general, whether in print or film, art and life. Nothing's off limits. What, uh, whatever comes up, comes up. This is The Maiden Voyage, episode one. I'm super excited to be here, and I'm super excited to be talking uh, to our first ever guest, and that is Dave Zeltzerman, the author of a number of books, but uh, one of note is Small Crimes, which was recently made into a film by Netflix starring Jamie Lannister himself, Nikolai Kosterwaldau. And if you haven't seen it yet, mark it to be watched and definitely check it out because not only is the writing really good, but uh, it's well acted and directed as well. Uh, so we'll be talking to Dave in just a couple of minutes. But first, a quick host update. I am your host, Frank Zafiro, author of oh, about 20 novels, most of them crime fiction, which would explain why I chose this topic. It's what interests me. And if you want to learn more, you can go to frankzafiro.com. A uh, quick update, I've just finished uh, the revisions on the third Cam and Bricks job series with Eric Beatner, and that has gone to Down and Out Press, so that ought to be out in 2018. I'm currently working on the revisions of a book called Fallen City that I wrote with Larry Kelter, Lawrence Kelter, uh, my co-author for The Last Caller, which is uh, also recently out. And my current work in progress is book number five in the River City series, my flagship series, in the end. So enough about me. Uh, let's talk about our sponsor. Wrong Place uh, Right Crime is sponsored by Down and Out Books. And since they're sponsoring us, well, let's hear from them. This is Eric Campbell, the editor-in-chief of Down and Out Books, to bring you an update. All right. Eric Campbell here, publisher of Down and Out Books. Glad to, uh, th Frank, thanks for inviting me on. Um, got uh, real excited about some of the new releases that we have coming out. First one up is uh, A Negro and an Ofei by Danny Gardner. Uh, that book did come out on May 15th. If you haven't read it, it's getting great buzz. You ought to check it out. I think you will find it um, very enjoyable. Uh, hot on the heels of that, on May the 20, May 22nd, we released uh, Back to Brooklyn, which is the official sequel to Everybody's favorite characters, my cousin Vinny. Uh, this one is by Lawrence Kelter. Actually, Frank wrote a book with him uh, earlier this year. Uh, we released it uh, called Last Caller, and now we're we're dropping out um, back to Brooklyn. Some of you guys know that uh, I also have a couple imprints under Down and Out. One is Shotgun Honey, and we are on a tear. Um, Ron Earl Phillips is is dropping a couple new books. Uh, Texas Hold Your Queens. Marie Crosswell. And then he's also doing some three issues during the month of May. Goat Finches by Ron Sales and Hurt Hawks by Mike Miner. That's it for this episode. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. And thanks for sponsoring the show. Uh, some good books there. Uh, particularly uh, interesting to me is the Danny Gardner one. Uh, because Danny is going to be our guest in episode two. So I'm looking forward to discussing uh, his book uh, just released from Down and Out Books. Uh, but now it's time to get to our guest, Dave Zeltzerman. Dave is the Massachusetts-based uh, noir horror young adult writer, award-winning, whose novel Small Crimes was recently made into a Netflix film starring Nikolai Kostrowaldo, among others. And he sat down with us. 
Hey, thanks a lot, Frank. Glad to be here. So let's dive right into uh, the probably the biggest thing that's going on uh, in, in in your world right now, and that is Small Crimes, the film by uh, from Netflix. I wrote the book back in 2003. It was published by Serpent's Tale back in 2008. Did not expect this to get made into a movie, but you know now it's out there. How'd that happen exactly? I was talking, or, gen- or generally. <laughs> yeah, I was talking with Memento Films about another book of mine, uh, The Caretake of Lawn Field, and we were going back and forth on that for several months until they were ready to make me an offer. And then when they made me the offer, they surprised me by, you know, optioning, you know, small crimes also. That's got to be pretty cool, though. I mean, to see the story you created, the characters you created, um, you know, depicted on screen. You know, it's not quite my book. I mean, there were quite a few changes, but it still feels like my book somehow and still feels like my main character, Joe Denton. Um, yeah, but it was, it was quite a rush. Um, my wife and I went out to uh, Montreal when they were filming this, and we were on set for a day. So we show up, and they put us in this little girl's room upstairs while they're blocking out the first scene. And we're talking with one of the producers as we're, as we're sitting in this, in this bedroom, and all of a sudden we start hearing all this you know, foot stomping and yelling and basically hearing my book come alive, and it was, it was really quite something. And were you able to meet the cast members? Yeah. Um, later, after they blocked out that scene, we were brought back downstairs. And so we spent the rest of the day watching, you know, watching the filming in front of the monitor. And so we met Nikolai. Uh, he was, you know, we met him briefly because he was busy. He was in every scene. But, you know, that week, Robert Forster and Jackie uh, Weaver were up. And they had a little bit more downtime, so we spent more time talking with them. So you just basically got to hang out on the set for a day. We did. We were originally going to, you know, go to the set for another day, but one day was enough. We decided the second day to, you know, explore Montreal. Actually, I was originally going to be have a small part in the film. There's a scene where a retired cop spits in uh, Joe's food and calls him a bunch of names. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great yeah, scene. Yeah, you know, the director wanted me to do it. The producers liked the idea of it. But the Canadian version of Screen Actors Guild would not would not give permission for me to do it. Oh, oh that uh, so, sucks. So then we, once that got shot down, you know, we had, they would put me in a background scene if I wanted to be in one. But I decided I'd rather go up during a week when Robert Forster was up and get a chance to meet him than, you know, than be in one of the background scenes. So, so we went up, you know, we went up that, that week and just... You know, visit a set one day, and that was it was fun for one day, but more than that would have been pretty tedious. Now, Robert Forster, he's the the actor that played the cop that was uh, sort of uh, driving uh, Joe Denton's. Uh... No, 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 that's Gary Cole. Robert oh. Forster uh, played Joe Senior. The, the oh dad. yeah, okay, the dad. You know, he's you know he he was in uh, Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. You know, great. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Uh, uh, the the uh, bail, bond. bail bondsman, yeah. yeah, that's an underrated yeah. movie uh, on on the oh, Quentin Tarantino movie. list. There, yeah, great movie, and he's he's terrific in it. This uh, small crimes, I mean, it, it, I'm I can't tell you how excited I am for you. This is, uh, I mean, Netflix is like HBO Junior in terms of, you know, putting out good good stuff, and you know, I mean, 
You got Jamie fucking Lannister playing Joe Denton. I mean, you can't go wrong really there. Um, I thought I thought Nikolai did a did a terrific job, and I, I thought all the acting was really strong. But I thought he was really exceptional. I think it was very strong acting, uh, you know, not to turn this into a, a film review, but uh, uh, it was very well acted and, and very tightly directed. And every one of the actors seemed to be very much inhabiting the role uh, that they were they were in. I, I would think it would be hardest for a guy like uh, Nikolai, who is, you know, so closely identified with the, you know, iconic popular character to kind of shed the Jamie Lannister skin to get into Joe Denton's skin, but I thought he did it. No, it was interesting watching him get into the character. You know, before the before they would uh, start the scene, he'd be getting into character for you know a minute or so beforehand. You know, mumbling stuff to himself as if it was Joe Denton. It was, it was kind of fun. You know, they made change. They made changes in the, in the film. That's inevitable when when a f- film adaptation comes along. Yeah, um, they, they have to make changes for both time, budget, and of course the director's vision. But I think I think you know I still find it kind of interesting how his vision and my vision overlapped enough so that the movie does feel like like my book, even though you know there was some significant changes. I, th- I think they did a good job sticking to the spirit of the book. Now, Small Crimes is one in a trilogy of books uh, that are linked by the theme of a man getting released from prison. Uh, can you tell us real quick about what the other two are? Right. Um, with small crimes, you have you know Joe Denton getting out of prison and uh, going on a on a journey for redemption or failed redemption. The next book, Pariah, is based very loosely on on the South Boston Irish mob, you know, with Whitey Bulger and some of the characters there. And when I um, when I was thinking of writing this book, I you know I just sold Small Crimes to Serpent's Tale, and I was thinking it might be interesting to start this book the same way where you get this very dangerous guy just coming out of prison and then wreaking havoc. You know, while Joe's journey is for redemption, Kyle's is, you know, basically revenge and to regain control of South Boston. Uh, Kyle is really a force of nature. He's just somebody who leaves mayhem and destruction everywhere he goes. And he's completely unapologetic about it. And the third one was yeah, uh, Killer? Yeah, so what happened was after I'd written, you know, written Pariah and uh, I threw out the proposal for a third book using that same man out of prison theme because I wanted to actually have a book already sold before I wrote, wrote it for once. So I loosely threw out the idea of someone like uh, this Boston hitman John Martirano, who could kill 20 some odd people and strike a deal with, you know, the courts to give them information on Whitey Belger and, and get out after 10 years. So I threw out that idea without really understanding what killer was going to be, just this general general thought about it. They, they liked the idea of also making this a trilogy. So I then had to figure out exactly what killer would be. And in this one, my protagonist also goes on a journey and here it's one for really self-examination or self-discovery to understand whether or not he could have been something else other than a hitman if things had worked out differently and i think i think uh kill is probably the best of the best of those three and that's that's one that i, I would love to see get made into a movie or tv series someday 
You use the technique uh, of an unreliable narrator uh, in, in a couple of these books. Uh, do, do you like using uh, that idea that uh, somebody could be telling a story and as the reader you, you have to be uh, aware that everything is not quite what uh, this person is telling you? Uh, what's the value of that for you? I love using that, but it only works if the unreliable narrator is delusional enough that they believe their lives themselves right they can't lie to the reader on right purpose. if they're just lying to the reader then it comes off as a cheat yeah but if they if these if they're so deep in their denial and delusions that they believe this and as you're on peeling the onion more they're fa- they're forced to face more and more of the truths about themselves then i think that technique can work extremely well it can be very powerful you were acted as as the publisher for for hard luck stories, but you had a bunch of short stories in other uh, small press mags and e-zines around that time, if I remember right. Right, I, I did. I'm, the very first story I ever wrote, I actually published in print. It was um, it was this magazine called New Mystery Magazine, where they were publishing mostly established authors, you know, people like Lawrence Block and and um, John Lutz and people that. Wow. That, nature but uh they would they would publish one new writer each issue and there used to be a boston mystery bookstore spencer's and i'd go in there and talk with the owner and he you know he knew that i was trying to get published and he showed me this little uh pamphlet that these people put out and sent out to all these uh, bookstores so i went home and thought of the exact type of story they were calling for submitted it and they bought it so so very first thing I ever submitted got bought, and then it was all downhill until small. Yeah, you know, you know, pretty much every writer that's listening to this uh, is sticking pins in their Dave Zelterman doll right now. <laughs> yeah, but then I then I also spent I spent um, ten years trying to get um, Fastlane published. Where what happened with Small Crimes? I wrote that. That was my third novel that I wrote. I, again, I wrote it back in two thousand and three. And I think it got rejected by every U.S. publisher. You know, I knew the editor at Serpent's Tale a little bit. And so I sent those to John, asked, you know, is there any chance you could look at this for Serpent's Tale? And he said, sure, I'll look at it. But the chances of us buying it, you know, just to warn you, are probably close to zero because we only buy things that we feel we can't live without. That we, You know, so I didn't have high expectations of selling it to him. At the time, I also knew... Ed Gorman, you know, Ed, Ed became a really good friend of mine, um, really great guy. You know, I wish he was still around to, you know, for a lot of reasons, but also it would have been great to have him see small, the film Small Crimes. So Ed had started the, this mystery line for Five Star. He was trying to get me to sell Small Crimes, so he introduced me to the Five Star people, and they wanted to buy Small Crimes. And Five Star was basically, always basically a library publisher, but I wanted Small Crimes to have wider distribution and have a chance of getting reviewed. And so I was sitting on this offer from Five Star for months, and after a year had gone by without hearing from Serpent's Tale, signed the contract for Five Star, put in the mailbox, and the very next day, seriously, the next day I get a call from John Williams telling me that, they love small crimes. They can't believe it. They want to buy it. So I then Isn't that the, just the way of it, huh? <laughs> yes. So 
So I then spent, you know, instead of being able to enjoy that moment, I, I then spent a month trying to convince uh, Five Star to let me trade out bad thoughts for small crimes. And they were nice enough to let me do it. You know, you know, but there was a lot of, uh, a lot of anxious moments during that month when I, while I was waiting for them to make a decision. Wow. So in a way, in a way it worked out for the best because not only did I get small crimes sold, but I also got bad thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. It could have gone, could have been, could have gone downhill. It went the other direction for you. That's yeah. And then, and then, you know, the way Serpent's Tale uh, sold their books, they sold them through consortium in the U S and they, you know, they sell exclusively to, or they sold at the time exclusively to, to independent bookstores. So it wasn't in any chain stores. And it was looking like the book would probably come out, maybe get a few hardcore noir fans and then die a quick death. And then NPR ended up uh, selecting it as one of the top uh, five crime and mystery novels of 2008, giving it, you know, giving it more life. So, it, you know, that book has been kind of a roller coaster. Yeah, I mean, uh, ended up where you are today with the film being made. All right, we'll get back to our conversation with Dave Zeltzerman in just a couple of minutes. But first, uh, we're going to talk to some of the experts in the field of crime fiction. And of course, I'm talking about bookstore owners, uh, people who own some independent bookstores all across the United States and especially some mystery bookshop owners. And I'll tell you, these are some of the coolest people you're ever going to meet. And one of them is going to get us started, and that is Linda Bond uh, from Auntie's Bookstore in Spokane, Washington. Hi, Linda. Hi, Frank. Good to be here. So can you tell us a little bit about Auntie's Bookstore? Oh, sure. Love to. Um, Auntie's has been around for about 40 years now. It's a, a biggest independent bookstore in this side of the state and, matter of fact, the whole Inland Northwest. Um, we have both new and used books, and it's a blast to work here. That's awesome. Can you give us your recommendation? Oh, glad to. Um, you know, I'm thinking that since I love to time travel and travel in space as well in history, it takes place in uh, Victorian London, and about the time of the Jack the Ripper, if you recall, and um, they were setting up a new murder squad at Scotland Yard because they hadn't caught the Ripper, and they were starting to get some other things happening. Matter of fact, they find a police officer in a trunk, and you can imagine what condition he had to be in there to get him into the trunk, So, and it goes from there. It's a wonderful, ball. it's like 1889, everything that goes with it. Sounds grisly and wonderful all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Linda. You're welcome. And now we go to Ann Arbor, Michigan to talk to Robin Agnew of Aunt Agatha's Mystery Bookshop. Hi, Robin. Hey, Frank. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your bookstore? Well, we're um, not a huge store. We've been in business for almost 25 years, and we carry new and used books, and we based our model on Uncle Edgar's in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a store I loved when we lived there. And we moved to Ann Arbor about 30-plus years ago, and my husband worked at Borders for a while and wasn't happy, so we opened our own store. And I've just had a lifelong love of mystery novels, so... It's only grown since I've had the store. 25 years. 
Yeah, a long time. It's gone fast. <laughs> what book would you like to talk about today? Well, uh, Exit Strategy by Steve Hamilton. And I have to say, Steve Hamilton, I've known, we have known Steve since his very first book came out, or even before it came out. He came in the store to introduce himself when after he'd won the um, Private Eye Award from St. Martin's for Cold Day in Paradise. And he's just such a nice guy, and he's been so loyal to us. He could have gone to bigger stores, and he never did. And he's stuck with us, and now his events are, you know, the biggest events we have all year because he's a Michigan guy, and his books are wonderful in addition. (laughs) And his new series is about a guy who's just gotten out of prison and is sort of stuck uh, being a a paid-for-hire killer, and he's trying to get out of it. So they're they're very hard to put down. I mean, Steve is such a clear storyteller that really, once you pick one up, you just you're done. You, <laughs> you have to read it till the end. Uh, Steve is a great storyteller. He's going to be on the show here uh, in a couple more episodes, so I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, well, thanks, Robin, and we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Well, you can see why I love book uh, people so much. Uh, it's great going into their stores, and I'll tell you, they they love authors. They treat you like gold, whether you're Steve Hamilton or Steve Nobody. And uh, we'll be having uh, uh, guests like Linda and Robin on the show every episode to talk about what books they'd like to see uh, get a little bit more noticed. And uh, pretty much can't go wrong by by taking their, their advice. Wonderful people. And uh, speaking of wonderful people, we've heard from the experts. Now let's get back into talking to the artist and saddle up again with Dave Zeltzerman. Um, You know, I wanted to touch on a few of your other works because one of the things that's, uh, I think, fascinating about you as a writer is uh, you're not singular in in your genre or even subgenre. I mean, you have all the noir that you've written, uh, but you have delved into some horror as well. For instance, uh, the Frankenstein uh, adaptation that you did. Uh, can you can you talk about that for a minute? I mean, I know you made the monster the hero and the doctor's kind of the antagonist. So how did you approach that? Yeah, a warning to all other writers out there. Do not even bother trying to write a Frankenstein retelling, no matter how good you think it might be. You've got all these diehard Shelley fans who are going to hate you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, but... But I'm really proud of Monster. I think it's one, I think it's probably my best book. My you know, my wife feels it's my best book. Uh, it's my favorite book of mine. It was easily the most difficult book to write. I spent a good nine months researching the book. A friend of mine was working on his doctorate in 18th century European history, which came in incredibly handy. He gave me a very long reading list of books that I should read for research. I spent those nine months uh, reading about the Marquis de Sade, reading about the witch, witch trials in the 17th century, uh, reading about uh, different elements of European history, uh, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, and uh, reading um, E.T.A. Hoffman, reading his stories, reading uh, Marquis de Sade's novels, which was not a very pleasant thing to do. At the end of all that, I had an idea of what I wanted this book to be. The basic idea of it is what if everything Victor Frankenstein told Captain Walcott in the book 
uh, you know, Shelley's Frankenstein was a lie to protect his reputation on the real story or something. The real story is something much more horrific, and the monster gets to now tell the real story. This is just kind of taking all the all the events from Shelley's novel, but changing and, and including them, but changing the reason for them. And it's kind of like a Rashomon sort of uh, approach. Uh, a little just, bit, yeah. I think that's a very cool storytelling device. I, this is one of your books that I haven't read yet. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to diving into it here sometime soon. Uh, it's not the only horror that I, I spotted on your on your webpage. Well, there. I've, read, I've read a few. Um, can't take a lawn field, more of an allegorical fable than I would say a horror novel, but people take it as a horror novel. That's one that you know, I probably hear more from readers about that than any of my other books. Uh, I was looking on uh, your blog there uh, in the days leading up to talking to you, and I came across a blog post about The Boy Who Killed Demons, which right. uh, I have not read that one yet. It looks like a young adult range book, if I'm seeing it right. Uh, you did something pretty cool with the blog post. Uh, uh, it starts reading like a straight post, oh, and then pretty quickly okay. you see it's, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> you, is this where I wrote something as a confession? Yeah, on how you got the story, and, and it's yeah. almost like a Blair Witch sort of uh, blog post. Yeah, I mean, that, would make, that blog post would make more sense to someone who, who reads the book first. Boy Who Killed Demon is written in diary form from a point of view of a 15-year-old, and it's somewhere between. The novel is probably more adult fiction than YA, even though I have a 15-year-old protagonist. Um, maybe it's somewhere between YA and adult. It's written It's written from um, from Henry's perspective, this, this boy who sees some people among us as demons. Whether he's crazy or whether he's actually seeing you know, demons in their true form is kind of left to the reader to decide. But he's both balancing his high school, what would be a difficult adolescent high school experience with feeling like he has to save the world from these demons. Is it appropriate for, for high school and middle school, or is it... Uh, I I think so. I think I read a lot worse when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah, I read I read, I read read I the Jury back when I was like 12 years old. Oh, okay. So. I hear you. I, my wife is a, a, a school teacher, and she teaches middle school, and uh, mostly um, she's taught middle school and always on the lookout for you know, different YA books that uh, every kid has a different kind of reading need, you know, and, and interest. And so being able to point them in a bunch of different directions, depending on what the kid needs and likes is, is, uh, is kind of the, the point. Right. Let me put this way. I think, um, I think Boy Who Killed Demons, if, if that was out when I was 15, I would have loved the book. Yeah, that's a good test. Yeah, I mean that's what I tried to do. I tried to write a book that, you know, could be you know that adult, you know, both for adults but also for a fifteen-year-old version of myself. Uh, that's a perfect approach, I think. Uh, the, the those YA books that have done well have a component, I think, of adult readers as well. Uh, so, I, I noticed uh, uh, a book I wasn't familiar with when I started uh, doing a little quick background to make sure we had something to talk about <laughs> and i came i came across uh, the interloper and uh that's the first i've seen of that uh title what uh, what is that that was something where i was playing around with the you know with the kindle self-publishing um 
you know, you know, most of my books have been published by traditional publishers, but you know, I was playing around thinking that novella-sized Kindle books could do well. And so I was writing these kind of uh, homage pieces to, you know, to the Richard Stark Parker uh, oh, books. Yeah. So kind of, a mi- kind of a mix of the Richard Stark Parker and Government Conspiracy I ended up writing, you know, putting out two of these novellas myself, and then I decided to write a third one and package it all up and, you know, make them into interconnecting and package them all up as a single uh, novel. And you used Kickstarter to do that, it looked like? Yeah, yeah, I did. I used Kickstarter. How'd that go? Yeah, we, we, we you know, we raised enough money to, um, you know, to meet the goals, but, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think... Um, I think at this point, Kickstarter, you know, using Kickstarter to start up a, you know, a self-published book has kind of been overdone. I don't think it. I don't think it, I wouldn't recommend it at this point. Actually, yeah, I, wouldn't thing, recommend, I wouldn't recommend self-publishing at this point either. To you know, uh, really? Yeah, I mean, I again, I I put out most of my books have been traditionally published, but I did put out several. You know, playing around in the Kindle space, I put out several self-published books. Uh, one, one is a collection of my Julius Katz stories that Ellie Queen published first, and then uh, The Interloper and two novels. And I think the days of people being able to make a lot of money or create a career through self-publishing on Kindle are done. I think um, Amazon had a sh- window... F- for a short time where they had different programs where people knew how to exploit them properly. I think Amazon did this for several reasons. I think they, you know, they wanted to create a lot of content for the Kindle. You know, at that point, I don't think a lot of publishers were moving their books over over to as eBooks yet. And I think they also wanted to sell a lot of Kindles to, you know, and authors were, a lot of the self-published authors were, I think a lot of the early uh, customers for the Kindle, and so I think Amazon had this window that was open, and I think the window has closed pretty shut. You know, I think it's, it's still possible for people to do to do well, but I think it's like winning the lottery. I think uh, you know, I think those days are basically gone, and I would strongly recommend that people, um, you know, if you're serious about a writing career. You know, focus on getting published traditionally. I don't think I don't think the opportunities still exist that existed maybe five six years ago. And again, I think those opportunities were only open for a very short time. So you're not saying that the uh, ebook format is going away. You're saying that the uh, self publishing angle of it is isn't as great an opportunity now as it was in the past. I think, I think most, I think the vast majority of people self-publishing are going to find that they're spending more money than they're making, you know, both with, um, you know, all the costs associated with putting together an ebook, um, advertising, you know, and I think it's, I think if you really, if you're really serious about a career, I think you're better off focusing on, on, you know, traditional publishing building, you know, building, you know, your career one book at a time. Now, that's not to say that nobody's going to be successful with it, but I think I think a lot of the people who are successful, they went in at that right time when Amazon basically promoting them so that they could attract more um, self-published authors so they'd have the content that they needed. Now that Amazon has their own lines of books, that's not going to happen anymore. 
you uh you, you have a pen name that you're working with now i noticed uh jacob stone right um what's going on there uh i'm writing a a crime thriller series for kensington books and they wanted uh me to use a pen name to to differentiate these books from my others so they're not hiding my the fact that I'm writing these books, you know, and they're, act, they're using the fact that I'm writing these books, but they wanted that they wanted that name as the author so that these books would be would stand out from as separate from my others. And you know, they are a different genre. I don't think you could call my other books thrillers. I mean, a thriller is a very distinct type of pacing and tone and structure, and and so these books are quite a bit different than my others. But you know, I, I think they're pretty good. I think um, the first one. Uh, Deranged came out in March, and I think it's a fun, twisty book. The next one, Crazed, I'm actually going through the copy edits now, and I think that I, I really think that one's as good as any of my crime noir novels. Your bio says uh, that uh, you were an engineer and you became a writer. That seems like a uh, not a very intuitive shift for most people. Uh, how'd that happen in, in your case? Well, you know, in, in as a kid and later in college, you know, my strengths and interests were math and computer science. And, you know, back then all I envisioned that I'd ever do would be work as a software engineer. Always read a lot as a kid. I always read a lot of, uh, first starting off with, um, you know, fantasy, fantasy and sci-fi people like Holland Ellison in the sci-fi and Ray Bradbury and in the fantasy space people like Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. You know, at some point, I again, I think I was 12 at the time, I read either Julian and that turned me on to crime fiction. And so my interest was software, software development and math. I, I was still reading probably a book every couple of days and probably, probably been doing that since I was, a, since I was a kid. And every once in a while, I would I would try to write a short story and, you know, my early attempts were pretty awful and I recognized they were pretty awful and I put it down and, and years later I'd try again and I think it was pretty awful and I put it down. And um, when I started reading Jim Thompson, it kind of opened up some doors of ways of thinking of how I could write and that helped me find my voice and that was around the time I wrote, uh, wrote Fastlane. And so for years, I enjoyed working as a software engineer. I liked the challenges of building software, designing these systems. But I unfortunately or fortunately got the writing bug. And once you get that bug, there's no coming back. You know, so I wrote several, you know, I wrote small, I wrote um, Fastlane and Bad Thoughts, you know, on weekends when I could squeeze in the time and. You know, wrote some short stories when I could squeeze them in time. And I was working for a, a small startup. Um, this was like a very aggressive company. We were working 80-hour weeks uh, required by the uh, by the people financing it. You know, so this was all I was doing. You know, it was kind of interesting. They, they put us on this two-year uh, retainment plan where if we wanted, where they were going to pay us a lot of money if we stuck around for the next two years but it would be doled out as bonuses. And the day we got the last bonus, they also laid all of us off. <laughs> <laughs> so we get this big check, but we're also 
out of out of work, and it's like kind of a weird experience. So I took the next couple months off and wrote Small Crimes. You know, this was the first chance I had to just focus on writing something that not, you know, not squeezing uh, whatever time I could into something. So I continued to work, then got a job again, continued to work in software engineering. 2008, you know, Small Crimes gets published, gets picked by NPR. I get this film deal for Outsourced, and I just decide, screw it, I'm going to write. You know, so since then, I've been trying to write full time. Well, certainly you paid your dues, but uh, you've also picked up a couple of uh, awards along the way, uh, a couple of Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine Reader's Choice Awards, uh, Derringer, which is uh, the Small Mystery Fiction Society's uh, award for short story, and the Seamus, uh, which is uh, which is the Seamus. Who, who puts that out? Uh, that's that's Private Eye Writers of America. Uh, how'd that feel? I mean, getting those awards, you had to feel pretty good. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> These were all for my Julius Katz stories. Yeah, it's great. Um, you know, I've also had uh, novels picked by Washington Post as Best of the Year and uh, American Library Association and Booklist and WBUR. So, yeah, I've had, you know, it's it's very rewarding to have people basically saying you're, you're doing good stuff. Were there any award ceremonies for any of those? Did you get to go um, get presented or anything? I didn't go to Butchicon for the, for the Seamus. I did go to... Um, you know, the Eloy Queen, Queen Reader Choice Awards handed out at, at a pre-Edgar uh, cocktail party that Dell Magazines uh, runs. So I went to both of those. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was great. Hey, let's slip this one in here. Uh, who gives a shit question? See how you do with a question nobody in their right mind should really have to answer. Is a hot dog a sandwich? Hot dog a sandwich? No. Why not? Um, it's a hot dog. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to eat a hot dog on a bun, right? You can eat a hot dog any, any way you want. You can eat it, uh, I don't know. I guess, I don't think of a hot dog as a sandwich. All right, well, you make a good argument, Dave, but uh, at the end not, of the not day. Not really, but that's, after an hour of talking, I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm up with <laughs> Well, you make a good argument, but really when you're at the ballpark or whatever and you're hungry, it's a hot dog and who really gives a shit, right? Yeah. You mentioned Julius Katz. Let's talk about him for a minute. What? Uh, that's a completely different type of writing than your noir or your horror. It's a different subgenre entirely. Uh, right. What's, who, who is Julius Katz and what's what's he all about? Hey, Julius Katz is kind of a somewhat of a pastiche, a homage to Neil Wolf. I mean, you have the name right there, Nero, Julius, uh, Wolf, Katz. And so Julius Katz is a brilliant, eccentric Boston PI. Like Nero, he's very lazy. He's also an Epicurean. Uh, instead of drinking beer, he drinks wine. If you can't tell, I'm a huge Rex Delphian. I love, I, lo I love Nero Wolf. I've read all the books. Unlike Nero Wolf, he's got a black belt in karate. He's very fit. He's a womanizer. Also, like Neil Wolf, he's got a assistant named Archie. Although in Julius's case, his assistant is a little high cliff shaped piece of uh, advanced technology that has its own AI. You know, basically, it has its own personality and uh, you know the personality of a hard boiled PI. And he does. He works as this little. Tie clip narrates the stories, Archie. And <laughs> That's he, cool. 
You know, he acts as Archie's, as Nero, as, I'm sorry, as Julius's private secretary, as his wine collector, as his accountant, you know, a number of things. And also searches the internet to gather the information Julius needs. And Archie's one true desire is to keep improving his neural network and knowledge base so he can uh, one day beat Julius to the punch in solving a case. Ah, so he he doesn't want to be Watson for the rest of his uh, of his life cycle. He wants to be Holmes once in a while. That's that's his dream. So it's a it's a fun you know I think they're fun stories. You have a lot of interplay between you know Archie and Julius, and even though Archie's a piece of technology, he's he comes across as more human than Julius, and and it's, there's almost like a father son relationship going on there. So did your software engineer background uh, really play into that? Were you able to draw on that? I think it helped inspire it. I don't, I mean, there's no, nobody needs to know anything about software or technology to read these stories and, you know, appreciate them. But I think my years as a software engineer helped lead me to that point where I was, you know, I was going to write these stories. And you gave Julius a background in karate. Uh, You have a martial arts background as well, right? When I was in my 40s, I started studying Kung Fu. And the idea of, at the time when I started, I think I was probably in my middle 40s, the idea of getting past a, a white belt seemed almost impossible. Last thing I expected was to get a black belt. So I stuck with it, slowly started improving, and and after about six, seven years, I, you know, I got my black belt in it. What, uh, what specific style of Kung Fu? Uh, it's Southern style, Tiger Crane. Uh, you know, we learned we learned other uh, disciplines, but you know that was the you know for the testing it was all it was all southern style. And you uh, do some tai chi as well. Yeah, I mean, I part of the uh, studying after the black belt was the internal elements, you know, redirecting energy, and um, tai chi was one of the one of the things that we studied to uh, how to do it. And you know, I, I don't I don't really do kung fu anymore, but I do. Tai Chi regularly, and nobody can explain why it helps with insomnia, but it does. When I have trouble sleeping, I get up and go through the routine, and and will fall into a deep sleep afterwards. Yeah, so it's a, I think it's a really good form of meditation or exercise uh, that probably a lot of people could benefit from. Yeah, my dad swears by it. Uh... Right, that's uh, something that you know the medical association you know, has determined does help with insomnia. They just don't know the reason. And, um, you know, Tai it's Chi. It's man. It's Chi. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what tai, tai Chi people say. What it does is it, is it unblocks energy channels within the, within the body so that energy can flow freely. And whether it's that or whether it's meditation or whatever the reason is, it works. I mean, I'll, uh, you know, I'll fall into the deepest sleeps I'll ever have after after going through the um, through the routine. Now you mentioned your wife a couple of times uh, already. Um, would you say she's your first reader? She's one of them. I have several friends from high school and college who uh, you know, I give the book to all at the same time and get their feedback. And one of them kind of acts as my unofficial uh, copy editor. He helps he helps tighten the the language, and my wife does also. So. So with both of them giving me their copy edits, I usually get the book in pretty good shape before I give it to anyone. And they're close enough and go back far enough that they can be comfortable in calling you out if they feel like 
something's oh, my friends love, my, the friends who i use they love uh you know they love ragging on my uh on my books you know? <laughs> <laughs> they hate having to admit that they like them <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you working on now what's what's next Work on these uh, Jacob Stone, Morris Brick crime thrillers. So right now I'm working on book four. I'm kind of doing things backwards in a way. When I first started out, I was writing the books I really wanted to write without any idea of what the commercial value would be. And now I'm working with this really great publisher, Kensington, and they're helping me make sure that these books are hitting the sweet spot as far as what the readers are expecting and what could be commercially uh, successful. And I'm able to do that while also still writing books that I think are pretty good and, and am enjoying writing. So it's, it's working out well. Are you uh, get up at uh, dawn and work for a certain amount of time, disciplined kind of writer? Or do you, I mean, what's your, what's your process like? Probably averages to, you know, you know, I'm looking at this as similar to my job as a software engineer. So I'm trying to put in at least nine hours every day. And I'm doing it seven days a week and seeing if I can be successful with this. Well, I'd say uh, you've already answered that question. And uh, it's just a matter of how, how much further you'll go. Uh, the whole thing with movies, it's such it's such a crapshoot. It's just so random whether a movie gets made. You know, first, whether a movie gets optioned, then if it gets enough, if everything falls into place so it can get made. And then after it gets made, you... The next thing is to kind of get distributed. So it's it's the type of thing that writers can't count on. But you know, you know, I'm hoping that with small crimes out, it opens up uh, some more doors for me. That's the hope, anyways. I'm sure. Well, I mean, it's a great film. It's a great story. So thanks a lot for coming on the show, Dave. I got to tell you, I'm uh, thrilled at uh, the success that you're seeing. You certainly earned it. And uh, well, Frank, and thanks for having me. It was fun. So uh, good luck with your own writing. Well, thank you. And uh, continued good luck with yours. Still working on the police procedurals? Are you moving on to other stuff? Uh, You know, I'm still working on the police procedurals as the flagship sort of series. Um, Working on the fifth one in that series right now, actually. But I've branched out into the detective novels and the kind of the noir, or I guess, if I want to sound cool, neo-noir stuff. Um, yeah, neo noir is so that noir writers can suck. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> really, no difference between neo noir and noir. No, just the setting, time setting. Really, I mean, that's yeah. that's just that's about it. Sort of stuff. There, I, I, I caught on with down and out books, and they're kind of coming up uh, as a smaller press. So uh, yeah. I got some stuff with them, and then uh, you know, like you, keeping 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 at it. Right. It's a it's a long road. That's what it comes down to. It's it's a long road, and you never know what it is that's going to get you up the next next step in the ladder. So. Yeah, it's a marathon, not a sprint, that's for sure. Yeah. And there's a bunch of luck involved at times. Huge amount of luck. Yeah, it's it's a it's such a crapshoot, and all, but you know the re- reality is you have to you know you you've got to be in the game to you got to buy a ticket to win the lottery. I mean, and you and, right. And you got to keep you got to keep trying to improve, and you got to keep trying to understand the market better. That was actually the big thing that I learned is that you, what what publishers are looking for are not great books; they're looking for good commercial books. There's a big difference between those, between that. So that took me years to to realize that. I think that's something that 
if you want to get published, you really got to like focus on what these publishers are asking for and what they, you know, what they want to put out there. And that's not necessarily exactly what you want to write, but you got to make that compromise. And I think that's an important part of it. It's great talking with you, Frank. You too. Thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks again for having me. And that was our interview with Dave Zeltzerman, stellar writer of uh, crime fiction, uh, noir, horror. Uh, folks, if you haven't discovered Dave Zeltzerman yet, definitely. Uh, he's easy to find. He's right next to Zafiro, So <laughs> go ahead and pick him up. In our next episode, we're going to speak at length with Danny Gardner. Danny's uh, author of A Negro and an Ofe. And he is also uh, has a background in stand-up comedy. He's acted, directed. Uh, and is uh, just a he's the kind of guy you want to have a beer with when you're at the conference uh, after after hours uh, fun guy to talk to uh, here's what he had to say in our flash forward interview what city do you live in now los angeles california your favorite writer my favorite writer that i will always have the most affinity for is octavia e butler favorite movie i would have to say blade runner new one's coming out Yes. I hope they don't ruin it for me. Favorite TV show? I'm going to say, I'm going to go with something recent and say I love how they did Boardwalk Empire. Uh, do you have a nickname? I've <laughs> got a few of them, man. Uh, what are you working on right now? I'm banging on uh, the next book in the Tales of Elliot Caprice, book two. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? <laughs> Golf. Favorite sport? Jeez, it's a tie between golf and baseball, but seeing I just played golf on Monday, I'd have to say golf. Uh, favorite golfer? Rory McIlroy. Five-second advice to aspiring writers? Don't take any unsolicited advice. <laughs> <laughs> where, where would you go that you've never been before? Oh, I would go to Spain. What's your favorite quote? You gotta go through something to know something. Oh, that's good. I like it. All right. And that's about it for this episode of Wrong Place, Right Crime. Uh, thanks to Dave Zeltzerman for the interview and to Down Out Books for sponsoring us, as well as Linda Bond and Robin Agnew for giving us uh, some great uh, suggestions on uh, what to read next. Uh, next episode, again, uh, will be Danny Gardner. Uh, we'll have a fun time talking with him. And until next time, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you, sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime. See you soon.